Welcome or welcome back to the company of the cat. I did a poll last week and you chose a Lovecraft analysis, so here it is. As I said though, there is a crazy amount of references in the novels and it's impossible to put them all in one episode, so there are going to be multiple parts. I will not post them one after another though, so the next upload is not gonna be an H.P. Lovecraft one, but there will be more of them in the future. Part 1 is about Euron and the Bloodstone Emperor, since there are quite a lot of similarities between them, and the H.P. Lovecraft counterpart, Nierlathotep. The Forsaken chapter is probably one of the most apparent Lovecraft references we have so far, and from what I have seen around the fandom, people talk about Cthulhu, but I would argue that Nierlathotep is more fitting. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced the dark arts, torture and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. We know Euron has done most of these things. We don't know about cannibalism, but I wouldn't put it past him. Necromancy, which again I think he is trying to do something of that sort, and the Tiger Woman. Only in Euron's mind, Danny is his Tiger Woman, is his Dragon Woman. We don't know what they mean when they say Tiger Woman, but I am guessing a skin changer, maybe a Lengi Woman, since it is the island of 1000 tigers or something similar. In any case, a woman with magical blood and a witch, I imagine. So in the present timeline, Euron is a Bloodstone Emperor figure. The last piece of info we get about Bloodstone was that many scholars count the Bloodstone Emperor as the first High Priest of the Sinister Church of Starry Wisdom, which persists to this day in many port cities throughout the known world. The Church of Starry Wisdom is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft's The Hunter of the Dark, and in the story, the Church worships near Lothotep, in his Hunter of the Dark aspect. The Hunter is a gigantic pitch-black entity similar to a bat, but its most characteristic feature is its brilliant three-lobed eye. The cult was founded by Professor Bowen, a renowned archaeologist, and the cult used a sacred relic known as the Signing Trapezoidron. They used it to summon the Hunter of the Dark, who demanded outrageous sacrifices in return for limitless knowledge of the universe. The Signing Trapezoidron was a crazy, angled stone created in outer space and was brought to Earth by the Old Ones. I would say that the fallen black stone that the Bloodstone Emperor worshipped sound pretty similar to that. Knowledge and wisdom seem to be the most important purposes of magic in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe. The higher truth, knowledge, and in extension, in many instances, power. Some say knowledge is power. Some tell us that all power comes from the gods. A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the root of ancient trees, green seers. Brand looked at the crown on his shoulder, and the crow looked back. It had three eyes, and the third eye was full of a terrible knowledge. Was it magic? Call it that for a want of a better word, if you must. At heart it was only a different sort of knowledge. Their eunuch priests wore eyeless hoods in honor of their god. Only in darkness they believed with their third eye open, allowing them to see the higher truths of creation that lay concealed behind the world's illusions. That is what magic provides, knowledge, and it makes sense humans always wanted and they still want to know as much as possible and the unknown was and always will be terrifying for humanity. And this is also a big idea in Lovecraft writings, the fear of the things we don't understand and we cannot reach. 
And this is only one of the reasons why I think the reference is Nyarlathotep and not Cthulhu. Nyarlathotep, unlike many gods in the mythos, is active and frequently walks the earth in the guise of a human being, usually a tall, slim, joyous man. He has a thousand other forms and manifestations, many reputed to be quite horrific and sanity-blasting. Nyarlathotep, unlike the other gods, doesn't have one cult, but many. He uses human languages and can easily pass for a human being if he chooses to do so. Most gods are all-powerful, but they don't have a clear purpose or goal. Nyarlathotep, on the other hand, is deliberately deceptive and manipulative, and even uses propaganda to achieve his goals. He is the most human-like among the outer gods. He enacts the will of the outer gods and is their messenger, heart and soul. The immemorial figure of the deputy or messenger of hidden and terrible powers. He is also the son and servant of Azathoth, whose wishes he immediately fulfills. Azathoth, also called the Deep Dark and the Cold One, has a great description in The Hunter of the Dark. Ancient legends of ultimate chaos, at whose center sprawls the blind idiot god Azathoth, lord of all things, encircled by his flopping horde of mindless and amorphous dancers, and lulled by the thin, monotonous piping of a demonic flute held in nameless paws. For Nyarlathotep, spreading madness is more important and enjoyable than just death and destruction. It depends on the writer, but it is suggested that Nyarlathotep wants and will destroy the human race and possibly the Earth as well. Robert Price at some point suggested that the name Nyarlathotep was chosen by Lovecraft as an homage to Lord Dunsany. In Dunsany's works The Gods of Pegana and The Sorrow of Serge, there are the characters Alhirehotep, and Minarthitep, a false prophet and a god described as angry, respectively. And I can understand why he made that connection, because Nirlathotep was known for sending misleading, apocalyptic and false prophecies and dreams to people. Nefrenka was supposedly the last pharaoh of the Third Dynasty of Egypt and a sorcerer. Nirlathotep took an interest in him and proposed a bloody pact. Nefrenka would sacrifice thousands of victims in his honor and Nirlathotep would give him the gift of prophecy. This was done and Nyarlathotep granted him the power to see the future. He secured the Shining Trapezoidron for Egypt and after he was convinced by the Hunter of the Dark to build a lightless temple to hold the stone and the deity within. The temple became a center of abominable happenings and the rites carried out there were so monstrous the temple was destroyed. And again, this sounds a lot like Stigai, the ruined city of the night in the mountainous shadowlands of eastern Essos. The city is said to be hunted corpses with twisted creatures such as demons and dragons and even shadow binders fear it. In addition, the sacrifices are reminiscent of the sacrifices practiced in Leng before the sealing of the underground template. So I would say that the tiger woman being Lengi is pretty plausible. According to legend, when Nefrenka felt that his life was coming to an end, he took refuge in his own crypt where he spent the rest of his life. In his time there, he wrote down on the walls everything that the future of the world held. Long after his death, Nefrenka once appeared to Pharaoh Akhenaten to propose that he bring back the cult of Nyarlathotep, but Akhenaten refused and in addition to this, had Nefrenka's name struck out from all records and monuments to let no one remember the atrocities he committed. For this, Nyarlathotep cursed Akhenaten, causing the collapse of the empire. A story very reminiscent of the 13th commander of the Night's Watch. Into the lands of civilization came Nyarlathotep, swarthy, slender and sinister, always buying strange instruments of glass and metal and combining them into instruments yet stranger. Men advised one another to see Nyarlathotep and shuddered, 
and where near Lothotep went, rest vanished, for the small hours were end with the screams of a nightmare. Strange instruments of metal and glass, so similar to Valyrian steel and glass candles, and all these weird magical inventions like the horns. Destruction and horror. And now that I said horns, and through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled maddening beating of drums and thin monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable and lightened chambers beyond time. The detestable pounding and piping were on to dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic Teberus ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is near Lathotep. So he's the soul, the messenger, of the powerful gods that remain asleep because of the thin sound of blasphemous flutes. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we know at least about the sound of two horns. The Horn of Winter, we don't know exactly how it sounds, but there is the line, I am the horn that wakes the sleepers. And Dragonbinder produces a sinister sound that can be heard in hell. So I'm guessing both of them sound pretty otherworldly and terrifying. It was the eldritch scaring of those finborn rats, always questing for new horrors and determined to lean me on, even unto those grinding caverns of Earth's center where near Lathotep, the mad faceless god, holds blindly to the piping of two amorphous idiot flute players. Flutes, again, and two of them. And I imagine these are not to keep the gods asleep like the numerous flutes of Azathoth, since near Lathotep is awake. In previous theories, I had said that there is a power source to the very center of Planetos, at least the underground mazes and the things Leaf has said hint that. And I still stand by it. And in the H.P. Lovecraft stories, Nierlathotep is both an outer god and a god that dwells in bottomless caverns in Earth's center, giving base to both the underground and the celestial elements inside Martin's works and how they are connected. Now, before I jump into the analysis of all the stuff I dumped on you, I want to talk a little bit about the dream cycle. The dreamlands are divided into four regions, west, east, south and north. In the west, among some other places like Sarnath, that I will talk about in a different video, lie the steps of deeper slumber and the enchanted woods, by which many enter the dreamlands. And this is a direct parallel with the um, trees and westeros, I think. The south is home of the Isle of Oriab and the areas known as the Fantastic Realms. To be honest, I don't see many similarities here. The only thing I can say is that Sothorius could be the Fantastic Realm. Since we don't know a lot of things about it, it is pretty much unexplored and we are not even sure which of the stories are true and which aren't. But personally, I don't see anything else. If anyone remembers something, share with the class. I cannot say the same about the East, though, the home of Selephice and its monarch, greatest of all recorded dreamers, and the dangerous forbidden lands. This sounds a lot like the Eye of the God, but also Shadowlands and the Heart of Winter. And lastly, the North, where we see two different A Song of Ice and Fire equivalents. The North is the location of the feared Plateau of Lang, home of man-eating spiders and the satyr-like Men of Lang. This obviously is about Lang and Langi, but also the far north and the man-eating ice spiders the others have. Other locations in the Dreamlands are the Underworld and the subterranean regions underneath the Dreamlands inhabited by various monsters. The Moon, accessible via a ship and inhabited by toad-like moonbeasts aligned with Nyarlathotep, and Kadath, a huge castle atop a mountain in the domain of the Great Ones, the gods of Earth's Dreamland. 
The underworld obviously is on par with the huge and ancient underground mazes around Planetos, where if you don't go in blind, you will see terrifying things that cause madness, that is, if you come out alive. The moon, I really think, is more of a simile and a way to connect things in A Song of Ice and Fire. I have a full video on it, so I will not spend a lot of time on that. I will talk about Kadath, though, because we do have a Kadath in Planetos, too. Kadath is east of the Bleeding Sea and north of the lands of the Shrikes, northeast of the Five Forts. The inhabitants of Kadath claim it is the first and oldest city of the known world. It is said that Kadath is a place where unspeakable magic is performed to slake the hunger of mad gods and even the Shrikes. Fear it. So, we have all the basics down. Let's jump to the analysis. In all of his works, George Martin presents and comments on sociopolitical issues, philosophical and ethical issues, and environmental as well as religious issues. And I believe this is a project where there is commentary on all of this. Magic in this universe is a part of it, it's not something unnatural. Contrarywise, it is completely natural. It is connected with nature and natural phenomena. We see connection with trees and forests, water, volcanoes and fire, the stars, the moon, and other celestial bodies, magic was there before the humans. They didn't create it, they tried to understand it and use it and many times take advantage of it, but they were not the creators. You do not believe me. You will. The cost of that belief will be three lives, a small price to pay for wisdom, so might say, but not one you have to pay. Even the price you have to pay is not something you create. It's blood. It's life. All ancient nations hinge their belief about blood on their religious dogmas as related to mythology or the origin of religion. They consider blood as synonymous with life. It sounds a little random at first, but stay with me. The Pain of My Existence, Peter Atkins, described entropy as nature's tax. Energy disperses and systems dissolve into chaos. The root of the word translates to a turning toward transformation, with that transformation being chaos. Entropy is all around us, your room gets messier, crimes occur, we're all gonna die and the universe is moving towards its collapse. Entropy is a mental model and it applies to everything, it is inescapable, and even if we try to ignore it, the result is a collapse. Ignorance of it is responsible for some of the biggest mistakes and failures. Thing is, disorder is not a mistake, it is the default. Order is always artificial and temporary. It sounds kind of nihilistic and sad, but it also what makes humans creative and innovative. It is a reason for progress, because if everything stays intact and pristine, why try? The question is not how we can prevent entropy, we can't, but how we can control it, work with it and understand it. This is where things get dangerous though. For a change to occur, you must apply more energy to the system than is extracted by the system. If everything is moving towards chaos non-stop, you need to be active constantly if you want stability. But if you are more active than one is needed, then the result may be the opposite, marching towards chaos faster. Apply that to a universe with an extra mysterious energy. Magic. People are actively trying to stop things that must happen. It is not only inevitable, but necessary. They try to stop death, to stop the night, the winter, but all of these are important. Without winter, you don't have summer, and without death, you don't have life. These are things that people like Mel try to stop because their god says, 
they are curses. But trying to stop some of the fundamental laws of nature can cause serious damage. It's not our place. This is way out of our league. Also, eternal summer sounds atrocious. I don't know about you, but working with 40 Celsius is my nightmare. Now, considering Martin's writing, relationship with religion, and what he has said about the Song of Ice and Fire religions, I doubt we have deities and gods. He said that the seven, the least actively magical religion, are as real as the other gods. What I get from that is that there are no gods. There is a power, yes, but there are no deities. The religions are built around this mystic power and events they don't understand completely and it was alternated. It depends on the culture, the way it was channeled, etc. Kinda like how religions in our world are formed. And the main reason I believe that all of them were formed around the same idea is that all religions have many commonalities with one another, but also because a religion like the many-faced god exists. They believe in a single god with many incarnations, or faces. There is only one god and his name is death. And it is true, as much as people try, death and chaos are the only things we will never beat, and trying to stop them and defy the laws of nature can only cause more damage. And this is why Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos, the faceless god, the god of the thousand forms, is a great parallel. The most human-like god that gets involved and has flaws is way more interesting and fitting than all-powerful evil gods that just are. Balance and grey characters, areas and situations are a big theme in the series, even the title points to balance. Euron, Mel and Bran are three people with visions and dreams and all of them have a different way to approach their dreams. Bran is a kid, a very young kid, that sadly has seen and lived through some really messed up stuff. He wants to help, but also he's pretty much obliged to help, he doesn't have a choice. He is seeing stuff and he takes them pretty much for what it is because he is a kid. Mel is a fanatic. The personification of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. She is very devout and believes she is doing the right thing because she is religious. Her god that she loves and had dedicated her life to won't let her down. If her god says that death is a curse, then she must do whatever she can not to die and not let humanity die except if it is for God. Euron is past that stage. There are no gods. He has seen enough stuff to know that people believe in gods because they are afraid of the unknown, of a dangerous, fascinating power. They create stories, names and faces for this power because it makes them feel more at ease and explain things that happened or didn't happen to them. Euron knows that they are afraid and he thinks he knows what they are afraid of. In his mind, if he becomes what they are afraid of, he's gonna become a god. The sad thing is, in retrospect, humanity isn't that important if we look at the bigger picture. Euron believes he will bring the apocalypse and build a world where he will be king, he will be considered a god. But like Nefrenka, he will die because Nirlathotep didn't really care about him. He manipulated him to achieve his goal. And the same happened with members of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Melisandre justifies all the horrendous things she's doing in the name of God because in her mind she isn't the one to blame, her God commands it. All this reflects our world too. People getting in over their heads because they think they know everything and are better than others. Or people committing atrocities in the name of their God. But in reality they just want to commit them, but not carry the weight of their actions. 
and kids have to fix this mess because they don't have any other choice. And I think this is the main reason why Danny, Bran, Arya, John are kids in the books. Bran is a character with a religion that is very close to primordial religions, but he's also a kid and has empathy. His storyline is that we all need to sacrifice things to make this world a better place. He's having the nature storyline because whatever we do, nature is important. It's still the reason we are alive. It provides food, water and shelter. The oldest religions were built around nature because there were many aspects of nature that people didn't understand, were afraid of and found fascinating. But also it provided everything they needed. Mel is the evolution of this. People started to understand the world around them, so God was in the sky, in heaven, somewhere outside of earth, in another dimension, and only worthy people had contact with him. And everything is justified and forgiven if it was done in the name of God. Euron, unlike Mel, takes responsibility for his actions. He believes that if he has the power to do all this, and gods are not real, he can be a god. He believes that he is the center and is untouchable, But again, this isn't true, because as sad as it is, humanity in retrospect isn't that important. To return to H.P. Lovecraft, all dreamers see the dreamlands slightly differently. It is mentioned that everyone has their own dreamland. In the same sentence, we are also told that the dreamlands that many know is a general land of vision. And that could be applied to A Song of Ice and Fire too. Aaron in the Forsaken chapter saw tentacles and his god dead, because this is what he knows. It has to do with his beliefs, fears, and upbringing. Everyone sees something different and vague, and they act accordingly. They cannot control the future, they don't know what is going to happen, but they are responsible for their actions. They decide what to do with the information they have, and there lies the difference. People that are violent, egocentric, think are better than the rest, are fanatics and have a messiah complex, will choose to do immoral things because they are better and rules and morals don't apply to them or because they have to, a higher power chose them specifically and so they have to do them. On the other hand, people that genuinely want the common good choose to sacrifice their life, happiness and whatever else they think is necessary because everyone is as important as the next one. H.P. Lovecraft writes about all powerful evil creatures, but Martin doesn't do that. Nierlathotep in our story is the aspect of the power that people channel and communicate with, the part of the magic that never dies, the many-faced god, the weirwood net with the many faces, the seven who are one, Rolor and every religion in Westeros that has more than one aspect. The power was there and people decided to form religions. People are the ones that decide what to do with what they are given. The power itself isn't evil. It's some people that decide to do evil things with that power. Moving towards chaos, towards winter, towards night, is not something that happened because the power is evil on its own. It's the default, you cannot change it. You can use that power to help with these difficulties, but it's not possible to erase them. Euron is causing problems. Bloodstone was causing problems, not the power. So this is it, part one is over, and I think it came out way more philosophical than I had in mind. I channeled my inner Platon, my inner Zanza Crusoe, so I really hope it wasn't very boring. The following parts are going to be more tangible though, but I really wanted to make an Erlathotep video because it was always the most obvious reference in the series to me. 
So yeah, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, press a like, subscribe to the channel and tune in for the next upload. Thanks a lot and bye.